We all want a business like Netflix or Amazon Prime. Businesses where once a customer engages with them, it becomes automatic and a part of their lifestyle from then on. But how do you build that forever transaction? I'm Robbie Kelman-Baxter, and I have been studying subscription and membership models for nearly 20 years. In this podcast, my guests and I share the secrets and strategies of the membership economy. Join us for Subscription Stories, True Tales from the Trenches. The world of B2B subscriptions has changed a lot since companies like Salesforce first paved the way for what would become known as software as a service. And while there are hundreds of marketing and sales-oriented SaaS products, it's taken a lot longer for the subscription model to be fully embraced in the CFO's office. Randy Wooten has seen the evolution of SaaS and understands the changing role of the CFO better than most. He's led businesses focused on sales and marketing solutions at companies like Salesforce, Microsoft, and Rocket Fuel, but more recently took over the CEO role at Maxio, a leading provider of billing and financial ops solutions for B2B SaaS companies. In this very rich and full conversation, we talk about why pricing and packaging of subscriptions is so hard, the power of a pricing council, and the changing role of the CFO in the SaaS world. Randy, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. You've been in the world of B2B software as a service for a long time. And I was hoping you could start by just walking us through your subscription fee, when your relationship with subscription started, and how you've come to be the CEO of Maxio. When I went to Salesforce, obviously Mark Benioff was key to the whole, hey, we're software in the cloud. And really, I think mainstreaming the idea of SaaS, which I think there are two components to it. One is how is software delivered? Number two is how is it paid for? So the legacy model was on-prem and everyone built software and Oracle sold a bunch of software. I actually joined or met with a group called TSIA, Technology Services Industry Association, a guy named Thomas Law, who wrote a book called b for b He's written seven books. One book I found incredibly powerful. His whole mission, and they've been around for a while, has been helping companies move from an on-prem software model where you are maintaining it yourself, you're buying the house versus renting it, to the software delivered as a service. We called that web-based ASP in the early days, which was we had a software that we delivered and people bought it and rented it like an apartment. The other real change was around business model, and it was... I think Benioff, who really championed this in terms of you could, since you were renting the software, you could pay for it out of operating expenses rather than capital expenses. And so it reduced the overall cost up front and amortized it over time. And that too, that business model was radically new and different. And then the third part, I guess, which I had grown up in services. And so what, how did that manifest is, well, in a SaaS model where you're renting the apartment, you expect to have a landlord who's going to take care of things when they're broken. And that whole function around customer success was a new idea in terms of how do you get customers up and on the platform? How do you continue to deliver value so that they renew, right? You haven't sold the phone or the prepackaged software on-prem and walked away, maybe had a maintenance contract. Instead, to get the value out of the contract, you had to work with the customers over time. So 
I think there were a couple of different elements that made SaaS very different, but it was what I started with from the very beginning of my career. So I didn't know anything else other than SaaS. I mean, I went into SaaS deliberately because it was the business model of the internet, as you've written about in your books. Yeah, yeah. And it's great. We've talked quite a bit in the last couple of weeks, and I've really enjoyed sort of hearing about your journey that brought you to Maxio, where you're now the CEO your experience with software as a service and with that second point that you just brought up around what does that do from a financial perspective, you know, going from CapEx to OpEx and what does that mean for the office of the CFO? Before we get into what, how the role of the CFO has evolved, I want to spend a little bit of time talking about how you align value with pricing and kind of subscription is one step in that, but I was interested in how you think about the best way to align value and pricing, thinking about growth from a sales-led perspective versus a product-led perspective, and just what changes as you try to get better at aligning the value that your organization provides with the way that you charge for it? That is a great question, Robbie. And I would say what was interesting for me starting this company, I didn't start the company, but join the company after the merger of two companies, SaaS Optics and Chargeify, was having a conversation with my lead investor, Chelsea Stoner, who's just brilliant and has been in the space for a super long time, incredibly successful. And we were chatting about pricing and packaging. And she said, Randy, across their portfolio, pricing and packaging is the most difficult exercise. And it is the thing that few people bring experience with and most early stage companies get wrong. And so I think your implied point is how do you associate value and quality delivered with the price that you're paying? I think there are a couple of ways to think about it. When I was at Seismic, so I was CEO of another company called Percolate. We were a content marketing platform. We sold Seismic, which is a sales enablement platform. The idea was how do you connect the production and distribution of content from marketing to sales to the prospects and customers. And one of the interesting ways that we're thinking about pricing in that specific space was, hey, we're selling to the office of the sales leader, CRO. There's a price per seat that they're probably willing to pay. And it's not going to be $500 per AE. And so then you're competing with all the other software. So Salesforce and Gong and Clary and dot, 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 everything in the sales tech stack, you're competing for part of what is the amount of dollars that someone is willing to pay for technology. Broadly across SaaS businesses, we've seen it's about 2% of revenue that people are willing to spend or you know, best in class in terms of spending on your SaaS software. So if you think about that's your overall... Sorry, just to clarify, 2% of your revenue on all SaaS software or just specifically for the sales stack? No, internal software, in so that's across all functions, not including COGS. So you have software that you would be supporting in like AWS, and then you have other software right. that you're using to just deploy your software. This is more about your marketing stack, your sales stack, your CFO stack in this case. And within that, then you double click down on the sales in a specific example and say, okay, well, how much does that translate into percent of revenue you're willing to spend on sales tech stack, how much does that translate into dollars per AE? And then what's your, the relative value that you're offering versus Gong? I'll just tell you, Gong commands an incredible price point in that world around sales enablement, conversational intelligence, 
And so you're trying to chip away at that and increase your price. So that's one pricing strategy is understanding what is the willingness to pay and the budget that you're competing with. The other strategy around pricing, which I think is more modern now in subscription business. So you have different types of subscription businesses you're alluding to. One is sales-led, where you're, you're doing a negotiated invoice, and obviously a sales team is doing it. And the price can come down to a combination of factors in terms of what are you charging for the platform? What are you charging for the modules? What are you charging for professional services? Each one of which, each of those components, you should have some understanding of your ongoing cost to serve or ongoing cost to deliver so that you have a profitability, perspective on profitability and contribution margin. So that's one model. Product-led growth is people coming to your site, they get a free trial, they sign up, they're able to self-instantiate, and you have very little cost in terms of sales and customer success. And so you can offer a lower price product as you move them from a freemium to a trial. What we're finding in the product-led growth model and across the cohort of customers that use that model is a usage-based pricing model where you identify a specific widget or some type of attribute that is associated with value for the customer and you charge based on that individual widget. So when I was back at Avenue A, we did third-party ad serving. Third-party ad serving means you would price based on the number of ads that you were serving. And so the value was associated directly with what you're delivering. Think about similarly like with telephones or cell phones. Cell phone servers used to be how much data did you consume? AI companies, modern AI companies now are charging based on number of attributes that are being rolled into the model. So I think pricing, you can have different types of pricing strategy. And at its core, you've got to be able to demonstrate the value to the prospect or customer such that it makes sense on their side economically. Yeah, this is so interesting. And you're bringing up, I think, several points that are important for our listeners to understand around the options they have with pricing and whether that pricing is based on the number of users or the volume of usage. And if it's about volume of usage, what is the unique metric? And I think one of the reasons that you were talking about how SaaS products that are aligned with your actual cost of goods is in a different category because that actually ties directly to revenue, suddenly you have access to more budget. If you're in that category versus you're lumped in with all the internal SaaS stuff. For listeners, it's really important to understand how your customer manages their budget and what they're gonna tether your pricing to. Are they gonna price it against an outcome? Are they gonna price it against, I have this much money and I'm gonna allocate it equally? But there are a lot of choices that people have, even in something as kind of structured as a SaaS model, you're not limited to seats. There's lots of different ways to think about it. And some of them are going to put you in a different category and maybe get you out of the fray a little bit. Yeah. So to that point, like Maxio, one of the reasons I joined Maxio was it has a different business model than the classic SaaS model, which is about seats, features, and divisions, meaning you expand a customer through either adding more seats rolling out more features so you get your add-on and your expansion mm -hmm. or you division hop. You move over to another division within that customer. So customer growth, how do you run customer success plays? How do you run renewals is very standardized. That's what I did at Salesforce. Microsoft, very similar. As I mentioned, Avenue A and Aquanov, an advertising model was a little bit different. 
at Maxio, our pricing is based on percent of revenue because we're a billing and invoicing solution. So the faster a customer grows, we have different tier-based pricing tied to their trailing 12 months of revenue. It's really different. It's hard because with customers who grow very quickly, they're like, hey, I was spending $10,000 with you last year. Now you're charging me $60,000 based on my growth. Why should I pay that? And you talk about all the value that we're creating, the reporting and the insights and the revenue recognition and you know, blah, blah, blah. But still, it's a different type of pricing model, almost like a usage model in that regard, because you're tied to their revenue growth. But it does become, back to Chelsea's point, having pricing and packaging as a capability that you are building once you get past that, I don't know, $5 million threshold, you're in $10 million zone is absolutely critical. The other insight that I would offer is my background experience. I'm like, hey, if you don't have pricing capability inside, you just go hire a consultant. And there are a bunch of pricing consulting firms out there that can help you do the market analysis to determine where you are in the market, your price point versus competitors. They'll go do a bunch of research with prospects and customers in terms of value and how to associate value. You create your zone of possible agreement where you can price that people are still willing to pay. And that market check is probably worth doing every two to three years. And so we did that when I started because I didn't understand the business model. I needed, I just want to understand where we were in our pricing structure and strategy. It was a little complicated. So we hired an external consultant and how we came out of that, I was like, oh gosh, we need to set up a pricing council, meaning every 90 days, we're going to get together and review our pricing and see how it's working with different segments, see how our win rates being affected by new pricing with new products, see how our churn rate is being affected as we roll out new pricing across the board in SaaS. There's been a 9% increase in price, like Salesforce. Salesforce raised their prices in August and just said, tough, this is the way it is. We've launched a lot of bunch of features and you guys are going to have to pay more. And you're like, wait, what's going on? Anyway, my point was going to be, I made a proposal to the board. Well, gosh, we should hire a pricing strategist. And it was super interesting. They said, you know, Randy, pricing is one of these things that like your core team, your customer success, sales team, product team need to have pricing as a muscle they build. And if you outsource it to a pricing guru, you layer on a lot of bureaucracy without really building the capability as a muscle of the team. And I thought that was super interesting. So now we have a 90-day pricing council. We get together. We've already found some really interesting things in terms of how we segment our customers. And, you know, this is the advertisement for Maxio. This is what Maxio lets you do if you're B2B SaaS in terms of understanding what's happening in terms of your revenue, churn, expansion by customer, by product, by segment, by region. And you can look at that level of detail to say, hey, what are we going to do with our new pricing and packaging? It's one of the biggest levers you can pull. And we're doing it collectively as an executive team versus having a pricing specialist. Yeah, I love that. And what I find really interesting is I haven't heard any practitioners talk about a pricing council. I've heard several talk about bringing in pricing expertise as a one-time thing every year or two, which is great. But this importance of having pricing as a muscle and having it be a differentiator. Mark Stiving, who's a pricing educator and, and consultant, talked about this. And Marco Bertini, who's an author and a professor at both Harvard Business School and Esade in Europe, believes that always working on pricing against customer outcome, ongoing outcome for the customer, is the number one most important thing that a company should be doing. So it's fascinating to me to hear your journey at Maxio and the fact that you're continuing to iterate and evolve and get smarter on what drives value and what drives perception of value. So great lessons for everyone listening to really think hard about what are your options and 
there are some pricing options that work great to get people on board. And there are some pricing options that work great to expand over time and to keep the relationship for the long term. And you're trying to thread that needle. Yeah, I think that's right, Robbie. Two other quick stories. One was when I was at Salesforce, I was responsible for customer success products. So developing services as a product, marketing them and distributing them. So when you think about SaaS or software, you have the software that you buy. And what's different than on-prem is you used to pay implementation fees. And then as a provider, you would leave or you would charge a maintenance fee, an ongoing 15 to 25% maintenance fee for the on-prem model. As we were talking about earlier in the software subscription model, you have this ongoing relationship. And one of the things that we were trying to figure out at Salesforce was how could we better articulate, package, and sell services at different stages of customers' journeys? So they're getting up, probably give, you know, they pay for professional services and implementation, but what are the adoption services that you could charge for versus just giving away for free? Data and insights technical tests, architecture, and Salesforce did this really well. I brought in, to your point, a pricing specialist. You know, Salesforce made a lot of money, so I could hire someone and, you know, incredible background and experience who was a pricing expert for product and services pricing. So the first type of consultant I was talking about was more like a market check, where they go out and do a bunch of survey and they have a bunch of insights. But having someone I brought on board to help us with deliberate packaging and pricing strategy. What pieces of capabilities could you put in different packages and price it was really powerful. Number two was the point you were making around value. So price is associated with a certain level of value. So how do you articulate that value? That's a messaging challenge. That's a positioning challenge. That's a ROI, total cost of ownership challenge. So we rolled out ROI calculators so that when we go into a sales cycle, we're able to say, hey, look, this is how we think we can impact your organization in terms of efficiency and effectiveness. These are the assumptions in terms of cost savings, et cetera. And so this is why our price point is what it is, because it's what it's helping you with. But you have to continually be able to articulate what is the value that you're providing. So when Salesforce raised their prices by 9% or whatever it was, they said, look, here's all the investments we've been making in people and time that you're benefiting. It's like retrofitting the roof on the apartment or rebuilding the foundation or building out a jacuzzi. If you're the tenant, you don't necessarily see that value, but you as the provider of that apartment, you need to continue to articulate that because you are making all those investments in engineering and restructuring your database so it's faster, et cetera. And if you're not doing a good job of that, then the pricing conversation turns into an arm wrestle around, well, I don't want to pay an extra two bucks per head or whatever. I don't need a roof. <laughs> I don't need a roof. Why did you put a roof on? So this ongoing value realization has to be communicated through your customer success motion so that it doesn't become a surprise at time of renewal where we're trying to pull the pricing lever and everyone else, you know, all of our customers like us are in a contracting environment, you know, super intense pressure to control costs. And like, no, 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 I can't pay that. And you don't want to turn a renewal into a churn. So I do think this pricing strategy, regular connections, thinking about how do you drive it with new prospects as well at time of renewal is critical. Yeah, great points. If you want to have a forever transaction with your customer, if you want them to stay forever, you have to really build that relationship from the very beginning. 
And you have to communicate the value you're providing and make sure it's aligned with the ongoing outcome that the customer is hoping for. And I think your point about the role of post-sales, of customer success, find ways to communicate what that value is, something that's often overlooked by organizations that maybe over-index on the initial sale, on the transaction, rather than thinking about how do I justify the loyalty and the trust that actually leads to the renewal. And the other thing I just want to point out that I believe is that if you're not sure if someone's going to renew at the moment of renewal, you have not done your post-sales motion very well. That you should know what's going on with that customer leading up to the days of renewal rather than kind of being, I see companies that are sort of in a tizzy in the last few, whatever, weeks before a renewal is expected because they haven't really stayed on top of it and they don't really know how the customer feels about how the cost has gone up either because the customer is growing or because of uh, an internal pricing change. Yeah, that's a great point, Robbie. Just going back to my Salesforce days, I think we had this brilliant data scientist and they had an enormous customer base. And what he was able to do was build an attrition predictor. And it came down to four factors in terms of how people were using the product, engaging with the services, et cetera, that he could, with pretty accurate forecasting predictions, determine which customers were going to fall in which buckets. Why this is so important is at some point, you're going to have too many customers for you to have one-to-one engagement through the post-implementation adoption cycle. So you've got to have a segmented customer success approach where you have your high-touch customers, where you can afford to put either assigned or dedicated customer success resources against them, where they're going to be meeting on a quarterly basis, doing health count checks, reviews, et cetera, understanding business problems, matching like strategic priority. Like you should never be surprised your highest segment. The challenge is when you get to the medium and low segments where you're doing web touch engagement, primarily through support, community webinars, learning, it's super hard to know how a customer is feeling. You can do MPS, you can do some CSAT surveys, but That's where I think it's critical that you have intelligence built into your product so that you know if your customers are using your product. How many, that's where you get to like daily average users, monthly average users, module adoption. What is the key trigger that you know people are getting more value out of your product versus if they're pulling back? So if we see a customer at Maxio that's stopping invoicing, like, you know, red alert should be going off in terms of, oh gosh, the person's not using our system to do invoicing. Well, that's the core value. All the other stuff we offer in terms of revenue recognition and reporting is tied to the invoicing. If the invoices aren't going out, we are absolutely up the creek. But what's so hard, Robbie, I think is doing customer success at scale. How do you figure out, how do you use system technology and today's AI technology to really be able to distinguish the customers that are at risk and then make decisions about who you're going to go after? I think one of the other challenges we've had at Maxio is we love all of our customers. There are some small customers that suck up an enormous amount of time and energy. So we are trying to move to a world where we are embracing unit cost economics. And we can look at each customer and say, this is how much they cost to acquire. So we need to get our payback on our CAC. And this is how much it's costing to serve over time. Can we make money on this customer? Do we think they're going to grow? And so it's worth the investment we're making. If not, we got to be okay with them churning. And so having that segmented based approach a deep understanding of customer profitability informs your customer success strategy and your renewal motion. Yeah, you're talking about a lot of financial things and it's leading me to the next area of our conversation, which is 
you know, the office of the CFO and what you're doing with Maxio to help those CFOs deal with a changing role. You talk a lot about how the CFO's office is poised for disruption, much like what we've seen in marketing and customer success over the past 20 years. Can you talk a little bit about what a rise in SaaS in particular means for the CFO's office and how that role needs to evolve? Yeah, Robbie, I think it's an enormous opportunity. As someone described it to me, with the types of data and technology that's now available for CFOs, they can move from back office compliance officers to front office strategic advisors for CROs and CEOs. And what I saw was, and I'm not the first person to say this, but you know, I spent a bunch of my time in advertising and marketing. Those functions have been transformed by technology. The first company I was CEO of, Rocket Fuel, 2012, they'd already been applying first generation, real AI, predictive insights, build all their own data centers. I mean, we were cranking a billion different transactions a day, making decisions in less than a tenth of a millisecond and providing an enormous value using AI technology 10 years ago. And the transformation of those functions, advertising, marketing, and sales, a lot of it has already happened. I mean, there'll be continued opportunities. But as I looked for my next gig after selling Percolate to Seismic, I was like, where is there a function that's ripe for disruption based on similar ideas around data and technology? So driving workflow automation, providing more efficiency and more effectiveness. And the office of the CFO is one of those. I think what you find is why has it taken so long is a couple of reasons. One is CFOs historically have been CFNOs who have told other people they can't buy new technology. And so they suck it out using old technology, which is Excel. They also- They're usually really good at it. <laughs> yeah, we're really good at both saying no and using Excel. Other thing, which is super interesting about the profile is CFOs are experts, meaning you go to them for answers. For them to feel confident in terms of providing those answers, they often want to build their own models. So every CFO I've hired has come into a business and said, yeah, Yo, your model stinks. I'm going to rebuild it. And it's you know a month-long process. They're going through. It's about a 40-tab Excel sheet. They've got all these different components that they're layering in. But they want to know every single cell and every single tab. And so I think there's a resistance, just a fundamental resistance, because a lot of CFOs come from big four, big eight accounting firms. They start off as accountants. They come in as a controller and they just, they got to be super precise and they need to know the models and they need to know where all the cash is. So I think there's this evolution of thinking in terms of moving from an Excel thinking to a database model thinking that is powered by technology. And the other component is CFOs want to draw a big wall around their technology from everybody else because they can't have like a Salesforce admin coming in and changing the value on an opportunity in the general ledger and screwing something up because at the end of the day, you got to pass the audit. So you have this kind of wall between systems that has prevented CFOs, I think, from embracing more of this financial operation optimization technology. So I think those changes have, are what I'm seeing in the strategic CFOs recognize this opportunity that they can use their data to help inform go-to-market strategy. So it's the CFO using a technology like Maxio that is doing the reporting on our customers. Cohort analysis, the ARR roll forward, the revenue depreciation, deferred revenue schedule, all of these different components come out of the CFO's office 
And it's sort of like an input into the forecasting process and the business model process. It's going to be up to CFOs. The future CFOs are going to be the ones who embrace that and recognize that they have a seat at the table in terms of go-to-market strategy, that front office motion versus just the compliance ensuring we pass the audit. So I think it's going to be the next 15 to 20 years. The other trend I think that's happening, which I talked to, I went and presented at the American International CPA Association, when I was fascinated to hear this, the number of people that are going into accounting is dramatically down over the last couple of years. So the office of the CFO and accounting firms in general are going to need to figure out how to do an accountant's job differently. They just can't keep up with the demand. That is where technology services helps. You know, that's where AI is going to help. You just can't throw bodies at the problems because you can't find the bodies. People, all the old CPAs are retiring and the young kids don't want to do it. Yeah. I actually also spoke at the AICPA a few years ago and was very surprised that that is one of their biggest issues, that they're moving into other areas, into tech, you know, the young people. And so there is this pull and it is requiring the CFO office to find new ways to leverage themselves, to be more leveraged. And I think the other thing that you bring up, which is so exciting for the marketers listening, is that many CFOs are finally engaging in a proactive yes kind of way, or as they say in the improv world, I'm taking a comedy class right now, you know, yes and, right? Where a CFO can say, yes, we can do that. And here's a way to do it in a way that protects our business even as we grow as an alternative to the no, which kind of shuts down all creativity. Yeah, the other thing which is relatively new is capabilities in the FP&A space. So if you think about CFOs having two dimensions, they have their controller duties where they're producing the financial statements, They're ensuring you got cash, understanding the cash forecasting, getting you through the audit. The other side of the CFO office is this FB&A space where you're doing the financial planning analysis. It's a very different skill set. You often end up with like, if you're a VC-backed company, one of the analysts may roll into that or bankers who've done it. And that's kind of like modeling the future. And so there's a lot of gray area, a lot of assumptions based. And those also were... Excel-driven models. And now what I would say is what you're finding is with some of the technology out there in FP&A, ones that we're partnering with, Giraffe and Basis and Forecaster, you can take the data out of the historical billing invoicing data out of Maxio. You can roll it in one of those systems and people can start doing modeling. The key here is they can isolate the different inputs. So they can give the model for marketing to the marketing people. They can give the model to the salesperson So the visibility to employee salaries, marketing spend, et cetera, all these things that might be confidential that you wouldn't want the person in operations to see what's happening in marketing, the CFO via their FP&A person can now isolate those through a SaaS-delivered solution that then you can start doing some modeling. Say, well, what happens if we increase churn here or add attach in this segment? How does that play out? We invest more marketing there. How does that play out in terms of our overall CAC or our CAC ratio? So I think there is one thing that's enabling CFOs to be more strategic and be yes, CF, yes, CF future officers, chief future officers is because they can run scenarios. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. It's kind of meta because it's like you want to use software as a service tools like Maxio to enable your subscription businesses to be more nimble and to give everybody in the organization, all of the different functional areas, access 
to not just to the data, because as we've all learned, data can be overwhelming, but access to models that actually help people make better decisions. So we're almost out of time, but I'm hoping that you would be up for a speed round. Sure. First subscription you ever had. Oh my gosh. God, I have no idea. Like what would count as a subscription? Like isn't a phone, like a data plan, a subscription? Sure. Okay. Fair enough. That would be it. It would be, <laughs> be a cell phone where you paid tier base and overage, I think. Okay. Favorite subscription you have now that you're paying for yourself? Okay. Wait, sorry. Wouldn't a subscription sure. also be cable TV? So I think as a family, sure. we would have had cable TV. Okay. So that would have been the first one. Sure. The one I pay for right now, I'll give you two. One is Strava, which I love. It's a, for the weekend warriors to go out and do their biking or running and you aggregate your results over the course of the year. You're able to have friendly competition. I think it's absolutely fabulous and it builds a community. It's like a social service for weekend warriors. The other one, which isn't as well known, is called Carve. It's for skiing and they have created pressure pads to go in your ski boots. And then you can track your skiing capability over time through your phone. And why this is so revolutionary is that I've been skiing my entire life. I used to coach skiing. I'm not that good. But the <laughs> hardest thing about skiing is you can't see what goes on in the boot in terms of how pressure moves, balance, et cetera. And now with these pressure pads in the boot, you're getting real-time feedback in terms of how your turns are going and you know your pressure on the outside edge versus the inside edge. So both of those I pay for personally and just love them. Awesome. Well, we had the CRO of Strava on the show last year for people who are interested in learning more about Strava. And I think I need to get Carve featured because that's fascinating in the use of hardware and software to provide a service is something I'm very interested in. So great one. Last question. Best habit you picked up in the Navy? <laughs> it's going to take more than a minute, but in the Navy, there's a saying, lead follower, get out of the way. And what that means at some level is first, you got to learn how to be a follower. And then the flip side of that is when you're faced with the situation, someone needs to be the leader. And that is, you know, taking the lead on just making a decision or driving something over their finish line. And in the military, it's just very clear, like it's not contentious to say, well, is this your, are you going to own this or am I going to own it? What I found in the civilian sector is it was lead follower, let's talk about it. And I was like, <laughs> why are we talking about it? And at big companies like Microsoft, you would have these ongoing conversations for months at a time and like, what is the decision and who's going to own the decision? So I think there was this, everybody in big companies thinks they have the right to the veto. Well, I'm going to say no, and I'm going to shut it down. Very few people are willing to step up and take accountability and say, I got this and I'm going to go do it. Flip side of that is in the corporate sector is as a teammate, you got to be able to say, got it, you got it. And I am in, you know, just disagree and commit. I'm going to follow. I'm going to do everything I possibly can to make you successful. And so I think this, that fine distinction is probably, and maybe the other one is just in the military, you never have enough resources and you're in the combat situation, you got to make do. And I think that's very analogous to a startup environment where you're never going to have as many resources as you want. Things, the plan you build is immediately going to blow up the day after it got approved. And you got to be able to respond quickly with a group of people, smart group of people figuring out what you can do with what you got. Fantastic. Randy Wooten, thank you so much for being on Subscription Stories. I learned a lot. My pleasure. That was Randy Wooten, CEO of Maxio. For more about Randy, go to maxio.com or check out the SaaS Expert Voices podcast, which he hosts and where I was a recent guest myself. And for more about Subscription Stories, as well as a transcript of my conversation with Randy, 
go to RobbieKelmanBaxter.com slash podcast. Also, I have a favor to ask. If you like what you heard, please take a minute to go over to Apple Podcasts or Apple iTunes and leave a review. Mention Randy and this episode if you especially enjoyed it. Reviews are how listeners find our podcast, and we appreciate each one. Thanks for your support, and thanks for listening to Subscription Stories. 